next several weeks together with our kids and now with one Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Glad you're here. Um, thanks for making uh, space on this beautiful day to be in this space. Uh, we're excited to be together to worship, uh, whether we're here in this room or those uh, join us on Zoom. Um, we're excited to, to be in a place to gather together as the people of God to worship Jesus. And that's really what our goal is to do today, is to set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus. Um, and that's, that's what we're going to do through song as we started out, just remembering, um, even as we look at this beautiful day, that God is with us and God is for us. Um, that's what we're going to do through opening the scriptures and reading God's word, uh, what we're going to do in confessing, confession and communion, what we're going to do through having others who have, who have studied the word, who have been praying and asking the Lord for words for us to share with us, words of encouragement and admonition. And so that's what today's going to look like. Like all those things, all the different elements, all the standing and the sitting and the prayers and the songs are all meant to draw us to a place where our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections are upon Jesus. And really, what we've been studying the last couple months in the book of Revelation is that. It's just a, it's the revelation of Jesus. It's all about Jesus who rules and reigns even now, the one who is slain, who is living still. And so our life follows his life, and that's really what our hope and intention is for today. And so before we get into that, before we move into a time of worship, let me say a couple quick things. Uh, first, um, we have coming up this Wednesday a corporate fast. And so um, a couple months ago, we started um, um, doing some fasting together as a faith family, learning what fasting meant and how we can do that um, together. And so this coming Wednesday, we're going to have a corporate fast day where we're asking you to choose um, a, a grievous sacred moment, something going on within your world and in your life now, in which you can come before the Lord and let your body join with your heart and mind and emotions in crying out and calling out for the Lord and the Lord's work in your life. And so we're going we're gonna to do that throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, we're going to come together at six o'clock in this space and we're going to break our fast with communion and worship. And so we'd invite you to come and to be a part of this. This will become a regular uh, monthly rhythm of our faith family. And so um, it'll be the second Wednesday of every month. So you can put that on your calendar. And this will be the first one um, since Easter Sunday that we're, gonna, we're going to, um, to do this corporate fast. So I hope you'll be a part of that April 14th. Um, and then after our fasting, like our scriptures, our scriptures aren't just about fasting. They're also about feasting. And so on Saturday, there's a women's brunch. 
um, at 11 o'clock, Smoky Rose Barbecue. Maria right back here has got all the details. You should have received an Evite with all the details this week. If you didn't receive an invitation uh, electronically, let myself or Maria know, and we'll get you all those details. And so, um, so come Wednesday, fast with us, worship with us uh, as we cry out and long for the Lord. And then, for at least for the women, uh, you can get together on Saturday and feast in, uh, in just the abundance of, of friendship and community that the Lord's given us as a faith family. So I want you to, to take advantage of that. And now, then, one more thing before we kind of transition into where we're at um, before this announcement. Um, it's Reagan's last Sunday. And I know she probably wouldn't want us to say anything, but that because she doesn't want it, we're going to. And so, um, so I want to say this to you, Reagan, like you have been a tremendous blessing to our faith family. You are a precious gift of the Lord. Um, you, like we will miss you tremendously, more than we can even express and more than you can imagine. We are so excited for what the Lord has for you next. I know you've worked hard these last several years to be in this spot, to be able to go back home and to work in the job that you've desired and, and, and really worked really, really hard for. And so that's a testimony to your character and the Lord's grace and mercy upon your life. And so thank you for being a part of our faith family. You'll always be a part of our faith family. And I hope you know that. And I hope you know how cherished you are. And so thank you for being a part of Christ City Church. We love you. And so um, before we um, before we kind of move into the next thing, can we just pray for you? And so um, if if you're around Reagan or you're com- if Reagan's comfortable, like if people come around you, can people come around you? I know we're in a weird time. So um, if you just want to lay hands on Reagan and just pray God's blessing over her as she um, gets to continue to follow the Lord and what and be a blessing to whatever family she's going into next, like we're jealous. And so, um, so today really is kind of a bittersweet moment for our faith family. Um, but if you just you guys just want to surround her, um, I'll let you pray for just a minute around her, and then I'll pray uh, for us for us all. Okay. Father, we do thank you for Reagan, for our sister, uh, for one who has pointed us to you in so many ways. Um, Lord, whose steadfastness and faithfulness, whose pursuit of you, whose longing to walk in your ways, Father, Lord, has um, done nothing but encourage our faith family as a whole to grow into maturity in Jesus. And so um, may she now in this moment and in days to come, Lord, just know what the blessing that she is. Um, may your spirit fill her. May you continue to go before her, Father Lord, um, and what she gets to walk into, Father Lord, in job and moving and new, and new and old new relationships coming back together, Father. We just pray um, that you would continue to um, to rest upon her, and the Lord that she would know, uh, Lord, your presence always with her, Father Lord, and she would know, uh, Lord, your love for her, not just through Jesus, who I know she loves and knows and follows, but Lord. Um, she knows your love for her through us and through her faith family, that she's always a part of us, um, Lord, and she, um, yeah, she's just your treasure child, and so may she walk in that, um, Lord, may we, uh, Lord, even in, in grieving uh, her not getting to be here every Sunday with us, know that, um, um, that she's always with us, Father. 
All this we pray um, because Christ is risen, because he's made us one um, in the Father um, by the Spirit. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Regan. The church is this kind of amazing thing, right? Like that Reagan going back to Austin, going, fulfilling the dreams that the Lord's put upon her heart, that he's put upon her heart. Um, even though she's not with us here, well, don't be with us here. You're still with us right this moment, which is great. Um, but won't in the following weeks. But she's not, she's not far from us. Um, she's a part of something that's much bigger than us. And that's the reality of church. That being a part of God's people is something much more than whatever this is. And this is wonderful as this is, amazing as this is. Um, and one of the ways over the next few weeks that we want to help us remember that we are a part of something so much larger and so much more expansive than whatever we might see in front of our face. When we're worried about what's going on in our world, when we're consumed as we typically are in our own church world, um, to remember that God is working and moving all across the world, all across um, 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 our nation, all across our city with men and women who love Jesus, who are desiring to follow Jesus and make much of Jesus just as we are. And so I want to introduce to you, for those that don't know, um, the Anchored Collective. So this is actually a group of about 20 or so churches that we put together about seven years ago. A couple of guys um, uh, in our community uh, began to ask certain churches to come into a space where we meet monthly to pray over our city, to pray for one another um, as we are... Um, as we're trying to follow Jesus together. And these are just a few of the churches represented in the group. There, again, there's about 20 or so churches uh, all together. And this Tuesday, we'll do it again. There will be about 20 or so churches and their leaders that come together to pray for what's going on in our part of the city, our part of the world, um, knowing that we're all different. Um, we have different, some different theologies, at least the kind of tertiary theologies, the things that are important to us but aren't most important to us. They were somewhat different in our methodologies and how we go about living out and following Jesus. But what we're anchored to, this is where the name comes from, is we're anchored to Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus alone. What we long to see amongst uh, the men and women of our city is Jesus' followers. Um, and that we're anchored to doing that in this context, in this space. That we, we believe God has created us, our faith families, to be in a space together to make much of the name of Jesus. To be the church amongst, um, uh, be a church amongst the church. And so as you think about it, um, as you kind of pray and you consider what God's doing in our city, you can go to the anchorcollective.net.org.life. Um, I don't remember. It's on our website. Um, and, and you can look over these churches. You can pray for these churches. Over the coming years, our hope and intention is to do things with these churches, um, to have um, some of our corporate fastings be fastings together um, as our youth and children grow, to do things with youth and children together, um, as a lot of these churches are much like ours, where there's smaller faith communities who are trying to, to be diligent in following Jesus in the ways that God has given them. And so, again, remembering that the church, what we do here is awesome. Like, in just a minute, we're going to focus all of our attention to this moment, to God with us in this space, but that we're not the only ones who are asking God to be present with us this morning. We're not the only ones who get to experience his presence. We're not the only ones who are, do, are a part of his work as his witnesses in our city. And that's a pretty glorious thing. It's an amazing thing. So in times of discouragement, we can remember in times of prosperity, in times of where we feel like we've got it all right, we can remember, hey, like there's all kinds of things that's going on that's much bigger than, than even we are. And so uh, will you pray with me and ask the Lord um, as we remember this big thing that we're a part of to help us be here with him uh, in this moment. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for your grace um, that allows us to be a part of something that we can't see. Or we can see one another right now. Um, 
we can hear one another's voices. We can, in just a moment, all together, come together and, and sing praises to your name. Um, and that's beautiful. But Father, we're also part of something that we don't see. That right now down the street, there are other faith families doing the same thing we are. Lord, that right now across our city, there is your spirit going out and working in the lives of men and women to call them into life with you. Help us not to forget that. Lord, to be, but to be ones who are encouraged in that, not in competition, um, but in compliment. To be ones who together, collectively, just as the revelation reveals that not any church can possess the whole vision of Jesus, but every church possesses what we need of Jesus. May we be a part of that for our city. So we thank you for the churches that are listed on this page, uh, for the relationships that you've borne, uh, to the glory of your name. May, um, may your spirit of unity continue to move about your people in this place, in this time, for the name of Jesus. Be with us as we worship him. Let your spirit, Lord, ground us in your presence, in your scriptures, in your songs. All this we ask in the name of your son who lives. Amen. I've asked Lily to begin our time of worship together by reading a psalm. So Lily, you want to come up and read a psalm for us? Here's the story I'll tell my friends when they come to worship and punctuate it with hallelujahs. Shout hallelujah, you God worshipers. Give glory, you sons of Jacob. Adore him, you daughters of Israel. He has never let you down. Never looked the other way when he around. He has never wandered to do his own thing. He has been right there, listening. Here in this great gathering for worship, I've discovered this praise life. And I'll do what I promised right here in front of the God worshipers. Down and outers sit at God's table and eat their fill. Everyone on the hunt for God is here, praising him. Live it up from head to toe. Don't ever quit. From the four corners of earth, people are coming to their senses are running back to God. Long lost families are falling on their faces before him. God has taken charge. From now on, he has the last word. All the power mongers are before him, worshiping all the poor and powerless too, worshiping along with those who never got it together, worshiping. <laughs> you to stand. We're going to continue together in song.
hurting, in the midst of um, suffering and sorrow, that as we just sang and as we just read, those that are broken and down and out, those that are lost and lonely, that feel helpless in the midst of, of a life that seems uh, unrelentless in the, the twists and the turns and the heartbreaks that come. Lord, we thank you that you're a God that's with us in the midst of those in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that heartache, and that you um, are a God who bends down to be with us, that is not far off, is not removed, but is mindful of us, that sees us, and that actually draws near to us when we feel um, 
we feel lost and hurt. And so, Lord, I just pray that um, in the words of Jesus that we read this morning, that we would um, not only hear uh, a challenge, but we would hear an encouragement and a comfort. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're continuing in Revelation, um, the letter to the seven churches. Um, and uh, this third letter from Jesus to his church is read to a people living in a pretty treacherous condition, right? I mean, did you pick up on what Holly said, the, where they dwell? Um, to the angel of the church in Pergamon, where Satan's throne is, where Satan lives, um, his place of residence. Now, if, if, if I'm guessing right, I would imagine that most of us uh, picture in our heads Satan's enthroned place as a place of debauchery and sleaze, um, a place of, of filth, a place of darkness, a place oozing with evils, and depending on how into the comics you are, um, all kinds of creepy-looking characters, right? Um, um, but that's not Pergamum. Pergamum is actually the very opposite of that. Pergamum, in fact, is beyond all other cities in Asia. As one archaeologist, William Ramsey, says, it gives the traveler an impression of a royal city, the home of authority, a place of awe and wonder, a place that inspires allegiance, a place that, that de demonstrates um, beneficial power for the region that it, in which it inhabits. And that's key to the description of understanding the context of Pergamum, royalty and authority. But the question, as we'll discover in this letter from Jesus, is whose? <laughs> whose royalty? Whose authority? Built upon a cone-like hill overlooking the valley of the river Caius, one would easily see the Mediterranean Sea some 15 miles away if you were to set atop Pergamum. It's no wonder that Pergamum could trace its lineage to prehistoric times. It's probably the oldest of the seven cities that we, that we know in the letters. It has a history that goes back beyond even written, um, written history. It's so strategically placed over this river basin that it could see, again, for miles, enemies coming. It could look over a province that have control and authority over it. It could regulate trade. All those kind of things made this a very strategic place. 
It was, says William Barclay, historically the greatest city of Asia Minor. For at the time of Jesus' address, Pergamum had been a capital city in some form or fashion for over 400 years. First to the um, Attilids and then to Rome, it actually was given over by the Attilids, the, the last kind of people who ruled the region. They actually gave Rome what became known as the Asian province. So, so Pergamum set as this capital city, not just a city on its own authority, but a city that oversaw this great land, this great kingdom. The city's name in Greek, Pergamon, actually means citadel. This towering stronghold this, this bastion, this fortress that, you know, makes all geographical sense to, to be, over time also became known as the finest flower of Hellenic civilization. That is, it actually became known as the most civilized of all the cities. It had a library of more than 200,000 volumes. In fact, we get the term parchment from Pergamum. Because when, when Pergamum's uh, leader tried to steal the uh, librarian from um, 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 from I'm going blank on the name now, the greatest uh, um, library in history that burns. Alexandria, thank you for you smart people. Um, tried to actually steal the libra librarian of, Andrea, uh, of Alexandria. Um, they were denied the ability, all the things they needed to make, to make paper um, at the time, all the reads, all the access to it, and so they developed a system of parchment. So this is where the idea of parchment came from, to develop their library. And so, so this city was not just a fortress city, not just a city, but it was also a city of civilization. Again, a library of more than 2,000 volumes. And yet the most spectacular aspect of this remarkable city was the upper terrace of this bastion, which is the sacred and royal buildings. Again, sitting on this hill, it was kind of enclosed. You can see the modern-day ruins of it. But this was these great royal and religious buildings sat atop the city. Here sat the great altar of Zeus, which stood some 40-plus feet tall and rested near the mountain's peak. You can actually still find the reconstructed remains of the throne of Zeus in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. If you ever wanted to go see it, you could actually see it. At the base of the throne was a famous frieze or a band of sculpted decoration which depicts the gods of Greece in victorious combat against the giants of Earth. Alongside this was the victory of Attalus I, which he was the ruler of Asia, over the barbarian Galatians. And so what this frieze like predicts, what this freeze depicts is here at Pergamum is where civilization began. Civilization began. Here the barbarians were overcome by the civilized. Here chaos was ruled in and order was made to rule. Pergamum was also a center of worship. Not only was it a center of military might, not only was it a center of, of intellectual um, um, flowering, not only was it a center where civilization began, the center of the earth is also a place, as you can imagine, of worship, a center for the four most important pagan cults of the day, of Zeus, of Athena, of Dionysus, and also of Asclepius. Now, there's something interesting about Asclepius. He was a god of healing, and in his temple uh, was the closest thing to a hospital in the ancient world. This is where um, a lot of the uh, practice of modern medicine began. What is important to note is that Asclepius' name was often proclaimed with the description Sotar, or Savior. He was Asclepius the Savior, the healer, the one who made things right, who took what was broken and made it whole. He drew people from across the province seeking his salvation. Asclepius was also represented as holding a staff with a serpent or simply as a serpent-wrapped rod. You'd see it in, medical, in all of our medical symbols, right, today, right? 
So beyond the birthplace of civilization, intellectual life over primitive life, in the home of the healer, savior of humanity, Pergamum was also the official center in Asia for the imperial cult of Rome. So if that wasn't enough, if it wasn't enough to be the mighty city that could oversee and overlook all the kingdoms of the region, if it wasn't enough for it to be the intellectual center of the world, to be the birthplace of civilization out of chaos, to be a place of healing and the home of the Savior, it was also the home in which Rome was worshipped. And not just Rome, but this, this, the, 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 the Roman emperor in his rule in that moment. For Pergamon was the first city, the first city, to receive permission to build a temple dedicated to the worship of a living ruler, to Augustus. Deifying former leaders was nothing new. Like, that was pretty common practice. Um, the veneration of those who had led before, making them in their stories somewhat godlike, or, or well, that was normal. But to vivify, to deify a, a living leader as deity was something new. And it was new in Pergamum. It was a place in which it was born. And not only that, not only was this place of where this human authority and divinity became one in this picture of the Roman authority, where authority and power make the world into their image by force and by fate and by, by prosperity and by, um, by all resources, but not only the program was the place that this birthed out of, they also became what was titled Nicorius or to the temple wardens. <laughs> That his program didn't only include the divination and worship of political power, it enforced it. It didn't just include it. It wasn't just a thing like somewhat like um, Smyrna that we talked about last week where that was a normal part of life was to, to hell Caesar, to tell, say that Caesar is Lord. Like in that to be a part of the trade guilds, you needed to, to be a part of that as we looked at last week. And this was a place where it was enforced. This was a place that, that where if you were to, to be a Roman and to be in the, uh, prosperous in this city, if you were to be a part of this city's life, you had to be a part of this temple. Of all the seven cities, argues commentator Robert Mounts, Pergamon was the one in which the church was most liable to clash with literally everything that made Pergamon Pergamon. Everything in the city seemed opposed to the rule and reign of a, of a crucified Nazarite who, uh, the rule and reign of a savior who died on a cross and rose again. Pergamum is where Satan had established his official seat or chair of state. Pergamum was not a city of sleaze and filth and chaos. It was a crown of civilized society, a palace of healing, a bastion of law and order. And that was the tricky part. The modernization of this ancient place coupled with an integrated and holistic vision for a healthy and whole life of religion and politics. A vision of a whole life of, of religion and politics and economics played on every human aspiration possible. Power and authority were evident and evidently working for the prospering of the entire province. Participation in the power structures and systems of authority of the day were a matter of common sense and social normality. It was a city where the seen and the unseen were united. But to what end and to whose end? As we've noticed, um, after Jesus acknowledges um, the human and divine relationship, which is the church, he always introduces himself in these little letters with a description from chapter one's vision that most suits the situation of that specific faith family in that moment. Again, no church represents Jesus fully, yet every church is represented by Jesus perfectly for their time and place. And the same is true of Pergamum. 
to the church of Pergamum, Jesus is the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. This reference links back to the vision of chapter 1, verse 16, which depicts Jesus holding the seven stars, that is, the unseen life of the churches, in his right hand. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The sword in the mouth has two angles of play in the first century. In the seat of both divine and human rule and authority, the throne of Satan, the capital of the Roman province, the sword represents both the literal and figurative power and means of life and death over its citizens. That's what the sword represents. The um, um, Pax Romana is a misnomer. Like there was, there was no peace in Rome. Peace was won by violence. Peace was won by the sword. That's how Rome maintained their peace. So power and authority represented who had the who had the sword had power and authority over life and death of its citizens. He who wielded the sword was in the power seat. In opposition to what is seen, Jesus is actually the one ruling with authority over all the matters of life and death. That's what it means when he says he has the sword. This must have been a comforting reality for those in Pergamum's context, right? Everything they saw said that Rome, Zeus, the powers that be, the spiritual realities, the economic realities, the political realities weighed on their lives had control of their lives, determined what was good and best and right and true, and yet Jesus is depicted as the one who holds it ultimately. The sword of the mouth also refers to the means of God's healing. It's not just, a, it's not just an image of power. It's actually an image of power that does something. It's, it's an image of God's healing, the power of God and God's words for, the, for God's word to bring into reality his purposes. Several passages in Isaiah will help us see this. These are messianic texts, that is, they describe a time when God's anointed would rescue, would redeem, would rule over God's people and over the entire earth. So quickly, I want us to just kind of see this, because we've got to understand, when Jesus describes himself as a sword, he's not just saying he has power and authority, but he has power and authority to do something specific. That his power and authority will do something different than the power and authority that we see, that was seen in Pergamum. The first is Isaiah 11, and it comes on the heels of a description of Jesse's shoot, the Messiah being the one who has the Holy Spirit resting upon him, the chosen one from whom a new world emerges. And he's described this way. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees. Again, think the context of Pergamum, a seen and unseen worlds coming together. Or decide disputes on what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The rod of the mouth, a tool or weapon used to exact equitable, compassionate, righteousness, righteous judgment on those most vulnerable and exposed to the ills and evils of this world. That's what the sword does. It absolutely exercises authority and power, judgment. But it does so on behalf of those most susceptible to, most vulnerable to, most exposed to the ills and evils of the world. An action that will bring peace, as the following verses depict, wolves and lambs, leopards and goats, calves and lions, cows and bears, as grazing together in perfect harmony. Read, listen to this description of what the rod produces in the world. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, these are enemies, right? These are prey and predator um, coming together. A little child shall lead them. I mean, imagine that. 
a lion, a child leading a lamb. A lamb is pretty, that's kind of our standard um, sacred moments, little pictures, right? But imagine that child leading a leopard or, or a lion. The cow and the bear shall graze, no longer feed on one another, but feed on what's provided by the earth. Their young shall lie down together, not as, in, in, as enemies, but as friends. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. This is what the rod of the mouth from the mouth of the Lord does. It brings peace, makes enemies into ones who can dwell together. Doesn't just destroy. It's not just power and authority to get his way at the cost of everything else, but it's power and authority that reigns and rules for harmony. And not just harmony for the lambs, but harmony with the, for the lions. What comes from the mouth of God's anointed brings justice and peace. The second passage in Isaiah is Isaiah 49, which promises that this, this word also brings redemption. A justice, but also a rescue. A judgment, but also salvation. And not just salvation for God's people, but salvation for the world. Listen to what the one with a sharp sword as a mouth does. And Isaiah 49 says, Listen to me, O coastlands. Which Pergamon would be a coastland, by the way, just if you're interested. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. God made and formed this weapon, right? This tool, this thing to be used. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have, a, I have labored in vain. I have set my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is, too light, is it too light of a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? Is it too light of a thing to be what God's made him to be, this, this one with the mouth that has like a sword? But listen to what he says, not just bringing God's people into, but he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That what I am acting through you is not just for the people of God's past, but for the, for the people of the world. Thus the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised and torn by the nations, the servant of rulers, he says, kings shall rise, shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a promise to the people to establish the land, to uh, apparition the desolate heritage, to say, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. I will war against those who war against you. And I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is what the one with the sword in his mouth does. He rescues. He heals. He judges. He rules. He frees. He makes for himself not just a people, 
but a world. But how does he do it? He does it by overcoming the true enemy and adversary. This is what Isaiah 27 says. In that day, that is the day of redemption, the day when this Messiah comes, when this, this one with the sword in his mouth rules and reigns, when he comes in his authority, this day, the Lord with his hand and a great strong sword will punish, a great strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will, say, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. As we talked about last week, throughout the revelation, the enemy is not flesh and blood. There are certainly consequences for flesh and blood that unite themselves with the enemy. But the true adversary is the devil himself, right? Satan, the throne of Satan, the place where Satan dwells. And yet the word overcomes even that which is unseen. By describing himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, Jesus is saying that he is the one who heals and saves, not Ascalapus or any modern technology or medical discovery. Jesus is the one who judges, not Rome or Augustus or any political party or any social movement or any economic system. Jesus is the one who rescues humanity from itself, not Zeus or Grecian intellect, not religion or knowledge. Jesus is the one, as we've seen throughout the Revelation, that has the true power and authority over life and death and life forever. That's who Jesus is. <laughs> Few words describe this tremendous reality. The amazing thing is this salvation, this rule and authority are exercised not with violence, not by the way in which the world rules, right? Through the use of wealth and strength for advantageous people, right? For not the use of, of intellect for those who are not intellectual, and for not the use of violence over those who can't defend themselves, but rather through a word. And this word is a powerful word. As Eugene Peterson reminds us that the writer of Hebrews told us in Hebrews 4 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit of marrow, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In similar way, St. John uses the metaphor of the sword to demonstrate what takes place when Jesus speaks. This is what takes place when Jesus speaks. It cuts to the very heart of humanity, the heart of our issues, the heart of our problems. These words conquer. Christ's words are not limp. They cut through willful resistance, as Isaiah 27 depicts, the Leviathan who's fleeing and twisting. They divide good from evil, as Isaiah 11 describes, judging with righteousness. They overcome rebellion and establish righteousness, right relationship, a covenant, as Isaiah 49 illustrates, a new name, as Jesus will soon imagine for us. To a people overwhelmed by the forces of opposition, Jesus is the one who fights for them, contends against those who contend against them. He is the one who parses out what is good and evil, who rescues, saves, and rules, for only the one who truly reigns, who is truly in authority, can wield the sword of life and death. No matter what is seen, he holds the power. He who holds the power of the unseen is actually on the throne. That's the description of Jesus that we're supposed to have as we read this letter. <laughs> and as we read, we come into not just a description of Jesus, but an encouragement from Jesus. Verse 13 um, tells us that Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. This idea of dwelling is not just a temporal state. The actual word that's used means this is your permanent place of residence. And he has empathy for it. Sympathy for it. He's not confused by it. 
He's not surprised that they're dwelling where they're dwelling. The Christians, the Christ followers in Pergamum are not in a strange place. They're in the place that God established for them to be in. And it just happens to be the place of Satan's throne. It's a permanent place. It's not a temporal place. This is one of the few times in our scriptures where the, the, they're not, the people are not referred to as transitory citizens, citizens of another kingdom, but permanent residents who are meant to permanently work against the throne of the place in which they're, they're inhabiting, not to be removed from it. Upon this city on a hill, in the place where both believers and their ultimate adversaries shared the same locality, lived a faith family who remained faithful to the name to the character of Jesus, to the life of Jesus, to the confession of Jesus, to the practices of Jesus. That's what it means in verse 13 when it says they held fast to his name. Despite the apparent adverse conditions, they had not denied their faith by yielding to the pressure to burn incense to the emperor and declare Caesar Lord. Nor had they bowed at the feet of the Hellenistic intellectual world of knowledge or cultural triumph over humanity, nor sought the divine and mystical serpent savior to heal them. No, they had held fast to Jesus even when it cost one of their own their life. Notice what Antipas is called in verse 13. He's called my faithful witness. It is the same title given to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5, which says, Jesus, the faithful witness. Antipas is counted with Jesus as a faithful witness. He's, he is, listen, we talk all about a being like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. Antipas did it. That's what Jesus says. He did what I did. He's... He's called the same thing I'm called. Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Notice the temporal nature of that title. In his holding fast to the character, confession, and practice of Jesus, Antipas is called a partner in the witness and work of Jesus. By holding fast. Partnering his witnesses in the continuous work of Jesus alive, even in the least favorable context, is what the faith family of Pergamum is doing right. They're doing it well. In their life together, they are witnessing. That is, they are speaking and living out the day of redemption and making a peace which Isaiah described. That's what they're doing. Speaking the name and living in step with Jesus' character and practices amid whatever context we find ourselves is how we too partner with Jesus in his witness and work. Not by running from the place where Satan lives, but holding fast to the character, confession, and practices of Jesus who is the one who yields the sword of royalty and authority, right where we are. He's the ruler of kings of earth, even if it's costly to do so. The question we should ask ourselves, Christ City Church, is are we holding fast to the name of Jesus, the character, practices, and confession of Jesus? Are we holding fast right where we are? Are we looking? Would we, if we heard that we were living in, this, in the place where Satan's throne is, would we want to just leave? <laughs> Wouldn't we want to leave? I'm sure the people of Pergamum wanted to leave, right? Like it wouldn't be unnatural for them to want to get out. And yet Jesus describes them in such a way, he commends them in such a way that actually a part of the, their con com commending is that they've stayed put right where God had them. It's difficult to imagine people holding fast, standing firm amid such overt evil forces that they could ever be in danger of losing all that they've stood for simply from a lack of discernment. It, 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 it's surprising, I think, uh, to most of us to think that, that Jesus has a few things against them. I mean, after all, they're in the, they're in the place where Satan lives, and they've held fast. Like, what, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what, could they, what could they be doing if they've held fast to Jesus in such a difficult place? 
What Jesus has against them, the few things in verse 14, are actually a few people. It's not some new form of evil. It's not unique to their name, their time and place. In fact, we've already seen this group in Ephesus. We'll see them again in Thyatira next week. The issue is the same. The problem is not uncommon, and neither is their misstep. But they're confronting, um, but the problem is this, is that they are, rather than confronting commingler's, in the ways with their own, uh, within their own family, they allow a syncretism of sort, a life with Jesus and a life of Pergamum to come together as one life. They seek the things of this world, the things, no, better yet, they seek the things that God wants for them in the way that the world wants it. It says to go get it. That's what they do. That's what, that's what they were falling susceptible to. Unlike the Ephesians who called this group out, admittedly not in love, and so therefore they're rebuked. <laughs> They're unwilling to even admonish amongst them that this is a reality. The reference to Balaam who taught Balak tells us what's going on amongst the Pergamum faithful. You can find the story in Numbers 22 uh, through 25 in chapter 31. It, it takes place when God's people were making their turn from 40 years of wilderness wanderings toward the promised land out of Egypt. The story is actually quite incredible. It includes a talking donkey, so it's pretty entertaining. It also has a sword-wielding angel, so for all those into um, to, to modern comics, it's great for you too. It also has a king, Balak, and a diviner of sorts, this guy named Balaam. The story goes that as God's people made their way towards the land God had set aside for them to dwell in, a land, by the way, in which they were meant to prosper for the blessing of the entire world, like that's the intention of them going to this place, that they would, they would, get, they would do so by going through these other kingdoms and overcoming these kingdoms, they were in opposition to God's kingdom. That a part of it, part of their claiming of the promised land was the overcoming of kingdoms that were in opposition to God's rule and reign. One of those oppositional kingdoms was governed by Balak, king of Moab. When, when he saw the Israelites marching through their, his territory, he worried he'd end up like the kings before him, that he would end up like the other kings that were dethroned. He knew he was, there was something working beyond what he could see with this company of former slaves. And so he called upon Balaam a prophet for hire. Now, Balak offered Balaam honor and wealth and whatever else his kingdom could offer if he would curse the Israelites and keep them from seizing his throne of power and authority. He panicked. He did what anybody in, in authority would do, right? He wanted to keep what is his own. And so he em, employed a guy who, who could curse because he's, listen, our armies can't stand against them. Our forces can't stand against them. Our neighbor's forces couldn't stand against them, no matter our sizes and their size. So something else is working here, so I'm going to get every advantage I can. And I am going to get someone to curse him. Now, Balaam, for all his avarice, nevertheless could not say anything that the Lord God had not told him to say regarding Israel. That's the irony, right? The irony is this, this prophet for hire, admittedly, from the very beginning, says, I can't say anything that God doesn't tell me to say. Like, and not just, not just a random God, not a pagan God, like the God. And yet he wasn't an Israelite. <laughs> He wasn't a part of Israel. He wasn't with God's people. But he spoke with God. He heard from God. He would say what God had told him to say. So there's kind of this, this interesting like, layer to this story of that Balaam isn't just some witch doctor. Like he's a, he speaks to the same God that the Israelites are following. He hears from that God. But his heart's still kind of twisted. Because obviously he's, he's willing to get paid to at least consider a curse on God's people. So there's something not quite lined up with Balaam, and yet 
by all accounts, if you just read it on the surface level, if you just read Numbers 22 through 25, you're like, but Balaam does everything right. He only says what God tells him to say, and he speaks with God. Not only does he speak with God, when the angel confronts him and his donkey talks to him and tells him that the angel is there, he talks to the donkey like it's normal. He talks to the angel like he does this often. Like this isn't a confusing thing for him. In some ways, and maybe this is too much, it's like he's entering a whole spiritual reality that a lot of us are like, yay, we would love to be a part of that. And, and yet he's the one who's off. There's something that he's missing in it. Three times, Balaam is paid to curse. Three times he takes money to, to seek God for the cursing of God's people. And three times, because um, he can't do anything that the Lord doesn't tell him to do, all he does is bless. He blesses the people of Israel, not from his heart, but because he was subject to God's words. That's the key. He didn't bless them because he wanted to bless them. He blessed them because he couldn't say anything that God didn't say. His words could not trump God's words. His desires, Balak's, the king whom he served, who was getting paid for desires, could not trump God's purposes for God's people. They couldn't speak against it. But only the one who was truly on the throne could he actually speak for. So Balaam's final blessing actually ends up being a curse against Balak's kingdom and his allies. And so Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went away to his, as Numbers 24 tells us. But that's not the end of the story. Like, Israel continues to move into this kingdom, into Balak's kingdom. They make this place their dwelling, and just as Balaam had predicted, yet instead of blessing the land and the people by removing the signs, practices, and people that were keeping the old way alive, they joined with them. Not because the Moabites overcame them with force, not because they had the, 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 all the, the seen authority, but because they seduced them. Literally, the story in, verse, in chapter 25 and 31 tells us that they subtly preyed upon the Israelites' aspirations for a whole and prosperous life. And they invited them to, into their way of getting that life, which was worship of their gods, which was um, sacrificing to their idols, which was um, creating acts of both physical and spiritual immorality that bound them to the way of the community in which they lived. It didn't hurt that the Moabite way also included an overindulgence in fulfilling the fleshly desires, getting what you want by the means that you want to get it, right? It wasn't necessarily they had to try super hard to get the Israelites to do it. But it was a plan, and the plan was wickedly genius. If Balak's Moabites couldn't defeat the Israelites straight on, and his diviner could not overpower their spirit watching over and going before them, then these enemies of God would get God's people to entrap themselves. That was his goal. And listen, it is a plan. The scriptures detail for us that this was not just a circumstance of human nature, but there was something working to entrap them. Numbers 31 tells us that it was upon Balaam's advice that the leadership of Moab, that Balak figured out how to cause the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord and thus provoke the consequences of their rebellion. You know what the consequences of the rebellion was? A plague that came among the congregation of the Lord, not among the Moabites. That was the consequence. They, he tricked them to actually go and fight against God, the very God who they were following, to put themselves on the other side of the rebellion by seducing them into saying, thinking that what they wanted, the Moabites wanted. What Israel wanted, they wanted. And they had a way of getting it. And a way of getting it that was actually a lot more pleasurable than the way 
They got it given them to get it. The opposition planned to get the people on the wrong side of their God. Why? Because the opposition knew they could not touch them in their own power and authority. Same thing that Jesus says is true for the people of Pergamum. It's true for the people of Israel, of Balaam and Balak. They, the throne of Satan knows he can't do anything to them. And so, instead of attacking them in the, in, in the city, he puts amongst them those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, those who hold, who are following Balaam's old plan. Once again, the enemy, on enemy's territory, the people of God were threatening to overcome, and the enemy put an old plan back into action. Let's get a few of them mixed together and mixed up on the way of life. And the many will suffer. And the movement, the takeover, the reclamation, the restoration will be stopped. That was Balak's plan. That was Balaam's advice. Unless the Pergamon followers of Jesus call out the compromise and call back into the way they've held so fast, then they will end up on the wrong side of the kingdom skirmish. And so just as the, the Ephesians were told to repent, because out of, out of, with a lack of love, they were confronting what was wrong, the works of the Nicolaitans, so too are the, the men and women of Pergamum told to repent. If not soon to come, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And again, it's important to note this. In Ephesus, the, 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 the rebuke was, um, if you don't repent... Like, I'm going to remove myself from your presence because I cannot be in a place without love. Like, that was the whole idea. Like, you won't be a part of this because this whole thing is built on the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You remove that from the equation, I'm not there. But here's what's going to happen for you guys. Like, if you don't repent, you're going to actually find yourself battling the one that you want to battle for you. You're going to find yourself battling the one that you actually have been asking and pleading to battle for you. In the word of Christ, there's conviction of sin. In it, we are confronted with the truth and thereby with our own failure to obey it. In the word of Christ, there's an invitation to God. It convicts people of sin and invites them back to the love of God. In the word of Christ, there's assurance of salvation. It convicts people of sin. It leads them to the cross and it assures them there is no other name under heaven given among living and breathing people by which we must be saved. In the word of Christ, there's parsing of good and evil. What is true, good, and beautiful. What is corrupt, dead, and in decay. The conquest of Christ is the power to win men and women to the love of God and to remove from the world all that has abandoned God's love from something else. That's what the sword does. It removes from the world all that has abandoned God's love for something else. And they're going to be ones who are going to feel it if they don't turn. Balaam's advice, which some among the church of Pergamum are following via the forces visible and invisible, ruling their city, was simply that what you want and what the city wants are the same thing. So why not work together in it? We're not asking you to abandon Jesus. We're just inviting you to get what you want, how you want to do it. Wouldn't, God would deny you the very thing he promised you. And here it is right before you. Does that sound very similar to another temptation in their scripture story? No need to make a fuss about the way when we're all we're trying to, to get to the same place. That was what the Nicolaitans were talking about. 
The same lies what the enemy continues to speak and tempt us with. The problem is, getting what we want and how we want it eventually proves where our loyalty lies. The master whom we love and the one who we hate eventually get parsed out. Eventually, we find ourselves on the side of the kingdom struggle we never wanted to be on. We get too caught up in the back half of verse 14, I think, which talks about literal idol worship because we don't literally worship idols, right? But this is a reference to the story of numbers and not to what the Nicolaitans' actions were. What we know about this group is that they wanted everything Jesus offered. Like, that's what we know about them. They wanted everything Jesus offered. They were insiders, believers, people of faith. Some trace it all the way back to the first deacons who were appointed in Acts chapter 6. Yet they saw no issue with getting the life Jesus provided through whatever means were at their disposal. Following to their own desires and culture's cues rather than the Spirit and the Word of God, they were opposed to loving admonition within the community, a way of life limited by the way of the one who is the truth and the life. It's an issue we still face today. Will we lovingly call one another to sit under the word who is Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, and ruling resurrection? Will we let the spirit wield the two-edged sword to pierce our hearts? Remember, it's not the the people who who wield the sword. It's Jesus. It's his spirit. It's God. To do the surgery needed to discern which of our ways are more of a mix together than are on the narrow path. Will we repent of our fear of admonishment, of missing out on what we want because of the way of Jesus? That's the questions we have to ask ourselves. And the motivation to ask ourselves is the promise, and I'll say it quickly as we end. The twofold promise of Jesus for hidden manna in the, in the um, new name written on a white stone are meant to encourage patient endurance because of what we have and because of who we are. What is given to us as our provision for life now and as identity for now and forever. To the Jew, to eat the hidden manna meant to enjoy the blessings of the Messianic age, the very blessing of Isaiah. To a Christian, it's meant to enter into the blessedness of the new world, a completely different world which would emerge when the kingdom came as it did at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. A world and kingdom we wake up into each and every morning since the first Easter Sunday morning. In John's gospel, Jesus said that I am the bread of life and that to eat of this would mean death would no longer be your enemy. If the hidden man and the bread of life are the same, contends one commentator, the hidden manna stands for nothing less than Christ, the bread of life. And this is a promise that to those who are faithful, he will give himself. We, we have all that we need for life and godliness. All that we need to have peace amid tribulation. All that we need to know how to live well, completely different in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The king who wields a mouth like a sword. In hidden manna, we have everything we need. All the provision we need to live in this kingdom for God amidst the throne of Satan. The white stone with a new name given us is not only new in time, something experienced, but new in quality. It's never been native for. It's completely unique. It's completely different. Whoever you have come to know yourself to be through the name given to you by your parents, by your history, by your lineage, by the things you've done and the things done to you, whatever identity our culture and our social constructs have formed for you to know yourself, all these are whited out. You are purified and given access to the only relationship in which you can really know who you truly are. You know, our scriptures are replete with stories of new names that mark both a new status, a new relationship, with the end, the responsibility of that new relationship. 
the um, names that are changed to demonstrate people's partnership with God and his working witness. Abraham becomes Abram when God chooses him, chooses him to father a nation and to, to bless the world. Rebellious, conniving, mistrusting Jacob becomes Israel when he doesn't give up his wrestle with God until he receives the blessing of God to be a part of God's purpose and redemption going forward in history. Simon becomes Peter when Jesus chooses the most human of all the disciples, the one who messes up the most, who gets it right in tremendous ways and gets it wrong in tremendous ways, who is most like us to be the one through which he continues his work in the world as Jesus now reigns in heaven. And finishing where we started, Isaiah, the arrogant prophet. Here's the promise of God to his people to bless the world through his relationship with them. And here's these words said over him. The nations shall see your vindication. The nations shall see your vindication, your rule, your authority, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. Let's pray. Father, I am. Um, I thank you that we have all that we need in Jesus. Help us to believe that. To be satisfied with that. To long for that. To hunger and thirst for it. Give us discernment that we who I think have strived to be faithful, to hold fast to the name of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the practices of Jesus, um, in a place that's not always advantageous of that. Lord, let us not be ones who, who um, for lack of discernment, find ourselves on the other side of the one we seek. Thank you that you know us. You know us in ways that no one else can, the world cannot, in ways that we even at times struggle to know ourselves. Let us rest in what you give us now and forever. In your son's name, amen.
soil for the tree, sun for all seasons, hide for the stone, the bread of my being, life for my bones. As I was sitting in these chapters from Revelation, my heart was stirred by how Jesus commends the churches in their steadfastness and how they kept his word and did not deny his name. Not denying his name. This encouragement stood out to me. How does one deny the name of Christ? In Luke 9, um, Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. 
The crowds consisted of people who were probably seeing firsthand what Jesus had said and what he had done. They may have seen him perform miracles and speak parables, touch untouchables, be kind to the unkind, and show mercy to the least deserving. And yet, despite how tangibly they experienced Christ, they had missed his true nature. Then Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, the Christ of God. The Christ meaning Messiah, Hebrew for the anointed one. His name reveals his identity. Um, we live in a time in church history in which the nature of Christ is being challenged not only from unbelievers, but from within the church. The very words of Christ are being questioned as the Bible is disputed on its inerrancy. And Christ's call to holiness is being reformed to modern social ethics. And this is where I stand um, in encouragement to our faith family. I believe we desire and aim towards revealing and acknowledging the person of Christ. I have personally grown closer to the Lord through our cadence of be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. I think our time together, I think of our time growing together in silence and solitude, learning to listen to Christ through prayer, the reading of his word, and trusting in the Holy Spirit's leading. Um, during the Christmas season, I uh, saw Rebecca reflect on her Advent reading as she was emboldened by the hope and the faithfulness of the Jews, worshiping and honoring God at the temple despite God's silence for hundreds of years prior. When I think of become like Jesus, I see the elders meeting and praying regularly and reading books to grow in the nature of Christ and leading their church in their own humility. When I think of do what Jesus did, I see Deidre bringing our entire family a Thanksgiving meal when we were quarantined with COVID for the holiday. I see Amber making the long drives out to visit her brother in prison and spending time with him. And I even see the moms like Laura helping me with my kids, bringing them outside when I come up here and talk to y'all. Um, like the crowds at Jesus' time, our city is filled with people who have some experience with Christ and Christian. They have probably had many tangible moments where they felt God's presence, and yet who he is as Lord and King is unknown and lost to them. So how do we make his name known to our city? This is our my exhortation to us. I urge us to remain faithful in prayer and pursuit of the Lord through his revelation of self in scripture, trusting it to be true and letting knowing him and being with him change us and sanctify us so that we may never deny his name through word or deed, especially because our city like us needs so desperately to know the love and goodness of our God. So now we're going to stand up and do communion. Um, if you could read the yellow with me. Okay. Father God, we stand before you in humble adoration as we set our face to the tasks and interests of another week and season as Jesus's church. Thank you for the blessed assurance that we shall not be called upon to face them alone and in our own strength alone, but that at all times we will be accompanied by your presence, strengthened by your grace, and encouraged by your family. Thank you that throughout human life run the, that throughout human life run the footprints of our Lord and Savior, King and Sage, Priest and Friend, Jesus Christ. 
who for our sake became the flesh and tasted all and tasted all the different challenges of daily living as well as the end we need no longer to fear. Thank you that as we go about our work and play in pursuit of relationships and aspirations, we can be conscious, conscious of the spiritual presence of the heavenly host. Thank you for the saints who rest from their labors, the patriarchs and matriarchs, prophets and prophetess, apostles, noble martyrs, for all the holy and humble, for our dear and departed friends and family who have shown us your way. As we remember them, we bless and adore your great name. We rejoice, O oh Father, that you have called us to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Let the awareness of this holy fellowship follow us wherever we go, cheering us in loneliness, protecting us in company, strengthening us against temptation, and encouraging us to act in the love and justice. O oh Lord Jesus Christ, you called the disciples to shine as lights in the dark world. In remembrance and repentance, we acknowledge before you the many faults and weaknesses of which we are guilty. We who, are, who in this generation represent your church to the world, we as Christ City Church especially acknowledge our part in this brokenness. Forgive us, we pray, the feebleness of our witness, the meagerness of our giving and loving, and the mediocrity of our zeal. Help us to live equal in measure to love received following the one who cared for the poor and the oppressed, such as we. Let the strength of your spirit, O oh Jesus, be in us all to share the world's suffering and redress its wrongs in the fullness of your joy. Through Jesus' life given, we live. our confession together and uh, close with a song of thankfulness. I was a prisoner
done during our time in these chapters of Revelation with the reading from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to, pre to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week. I did want to say quickly, if I could, a few of us are gathering over at Glencoe Park for lunch after this. Um, if you'd love to join us, you're welcome to. We're going to say goodbye to our friend Reagan. So.